I'm glad to be preaching in a sermon series on Proverbs. Um, I have a, a special relationship, I think, with Proverbs. Hopefully every believer has an encounter with Proverbs and biblical wisdom at some point. Um, but I grew up in a particularly Christian household, but uh, the way the words that I use, I, I was sort of impoverished and naive in my Christianity, a little self-righteous, um, thin. I had a thin Christianity, and God had to kind of wake me up um, with wisdom, um, and I had a special encounter with the book of Proverbs uh, as I was beginning in seminary, actually. And wow, the, the word of God really opened up for me, and uh, the way that the world works. When I was Starting at seminary, I thought, oh, I'm following my calling. I'm doing what God wants me to do. That means God will take care of everything else in my life. Money will just fall from the sky. Friends will just come out of the woodwork. All my problems will disappear because I'm trying to follow God. Reality is much the opposite. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) If you're following your calling, difficulties come out of the woodwork to try to stop you from following that calling. And I was very encouraged by what I found in Proverbs and how wisdom is the way through those difficulties. The gospel is good, and the gospel has wisdom um, that transcends what we can know, right? Um, And wisdom is the gospel applied. Wisdom is living life the way that God intended. And so I began to slowly learn that I was supposed to live wisely. I was supposed to live using wisdom. Um, and not uh, take shortcuts. That's one thing I I wanted to say is there's no shortcut. If you're a Christian, that doesn't mean that some, you know, cheat code has opened up for you and life is going to be easy. And you've probably heard that before, right? Um, But I think the book of Proverbs has all these uh, sayings and bits of wisdom that help you realize God's way is best. And we'll actually kind of dig into that a little bit. So this uh, sermon uh, is going to be about sex, sin, and stewardship. That got your attention, right? Uh, <laughs> the passage that I got today is actually it has a little funny story to it. When I was at my first preaching class um, in seminary, we were coming up against our first round of actually preaching a sermon. Okay, and that's a scary moment for any seminary student. And the professors, I don't know if, you know, God told them to do this or what, but they had this, like, grab bag of really difficult passages to preach. <laughs> and so each student sort of had a, drew a number, and you found out what your passage was going to be. And I drew my number, just randomly assigned, God ordained it, right? Uh, I drew my number, and it was this passage. And I was like, you have to be kidding me. <laughs> you have to be kidding me. Um, So I want a second shot at this sermon. This is built on a a sermon that I did give in seminary years ago, more than a decade ago. Um, But because I had to preach this sermon, this passage has sort of settled really, really deep in my soul. And I come back to it again and again for its concept of sin. So much of this sermon will be a theology of sin. What is sin? And the recognition, the realization that I have is that the book of Proverbs helps me identify and diagnose sin. Does that make sense? When you're a naive Christian, you're like, okay, follow the Ten Commandments, I guess, um, and then you're good. It's fine. I, I, I can do that. Don't murder. Okay, got that. Don't steal anything. Okay, I can do that. But the, as a Christian and, and maybe an immature Christian, there are all these things that you are doing that are harder to diagnose as sin, but they are sin. It is sin. 
And reading the book of Proverbs opened your eyes to that because the book of Proverbs is all about real life, okay? And the book of Proverbs is within God's word, and God's word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, right? It's like a scalpel. And it's going to find that core, that, that secret part that you thought the Bible would... The Bible is nice, right? The, the Bible is positive. No, no, no. It's going to find that weak core in you and say, we need to diagnose this. We need to cut it out and get rid of that, right? And that's what it did to me. And that's why I'm, I'm actually very mortified and humbled to be up here. Um, usually I can just teach. But I think this sermon is very preach <laughs> today, and I'm preaching to myself. I'm kind of looking in the mirror and preaching this to myself, but hopefully you can hear the wisdom as well, because this passage talks about sexual sin, but I'm going to sort of look at sexual sin as a type of sin, at the concept of sin, and so it's not a, a sermon about sex. Um, it could be. I'll read the chapter later, and, and it could be, but we're going to look at how does wisdom help us diagnose sin and live a wise life that is far away from the temptation of sin and from the, the pattern of sin. The, the passage that sort of uh, really opened my eyes uh, was Proverbs 3.19, which said, The Lord founded the earth by wisdom. He established the heavens by understanding. That means that wisdom and understanding are sort of baked into creation. I sort of mentioned this in my sermon on the Trinity, but uh, a lot of people say, well, all truth is God's truth, right? If it's true, if something is true in creation, it's because God put it there. Well, not only is truth baked into the original creation, but wisdom and understanding as well, right? Later in Proverbs, it'll say, go to the ant, you sluggard, observe its ways and and grow wise, right? Because in nature, in creation, are examples of wisdom. It's operating by wisdom. And what, what we need to learn is not uh, that we need to put wisdom into creation, but our eyes need to be open to the wisdom that's in creation and God's in, in original design. And this passage uh, will help us do that um, with sin, with sexual sin, and the way that we should live and go forward. So this, this sermon is really telling on myself, okay? I wouldn't know these things unless I was repenting of them. And I will say that repentance makes you very smart, okay? (laughs) If you are avoiding repentance, you're going to be playing dumb so often, right? Oh, I don't know. Is that sin? I don't know. I don't know. Is that sin? Oh, I don't know. I'm not going to look at it. When you're repenting, you have to come face to face with what you're doing wrong, okay? And so this sermon is a product of my repentance, and I want you to begin repenting and be repenting as well. Um, And that leads to my first slide here. See if my clicker can work. There. So I was trying to find a way of explaining this to you before I came here today, and so I was scrolling through Twitter because that's just what I do, and I found this graphic on Twitter that puts it way more concisely than, than I could. This graphic on the screen um, distinguishes Reformation Christianity, which is sort of a reclamation of historic uh, Christian faith, and pietistic moralism. Okay, so those are fancy English words to say a substitute Christianity, right? So a real Christianity realizes that a believer, the Christian, is simultaneously a sinner and a saint. Sinner and a saint. 
Whereas there is this temptation when you become a Christian that, oh, you're, you're a, a good person now. All of your troubles are behind you. All the wickedness that you committed is behind you. You no longer do sin anymore. You no longer do evil anymore. And now it's your job to go tell everyone, become a good person like I am. That's pietistic moralism. And Pastor James actually did a good job of, of addressing at the beginning of Proverbs and saying it's really tempting to be a uh, legalist or be a moralist. You say, oh, well, I follow all the rules. I follow all the Ten Commandments. I'm good. I'm perfect. I'm righteous. But the book of Proverbs says maybe you aren't. Maybe you aren't. And so when we humble ourselves and we come to God's word, we embrace the gospel because it allows us to repent it allows us to change our ways. And that's what the book of Proverbs has done for me. I was one of those simple. I was one of those naive that the book of Proverbs made wise to show me the error of my ways. And so when I get up here and preach, I'm not a good person who's trying to sell you a product. Here's how you become a good person like me. That's how the world operates. When I get up here, it's really me confessing and saying, wow, I did not know that I was in rebellion towards God. I was trying to subsist on a, a fake righteousness that I made for myself, and it was malnourishing me. It was, it was starving me of true life and true righteousness. And so when we, when we preach from God's word, we're actually to live the life of God. God's word communicates us this, this truth that we can live from, and we can turn away from sin and start living true life. That's very powerful. That's very, very strong. That is strong. When I get up here and I'm able to say that, I am, I am casting away sin and I'm casting away temptation. That's a very strong thing to do. But at the same time, it's because that's what I used to do. That's where I used to be. So I am trying to do this. I'm just a fellow traveler um, leading from weakness. Okay? When I get up here, I'm not selling you anything. I, I don't have anything to... to that's worth you paying me money for. Um, I'm just offering what is free, this grace from God to live the life of God, the life that God would have for us. So, a little bit of uh, background on um, Proverbs 5, and then I'll read, I'll actually read the whole chapter to give us context. Oh, we'll just stay on that slide. Um, so, we're in the sermon series on Proverbs, and the thing about Proverbs, I shared this with Paul last week, um, the Proverbs that we can take from chapters 10 through 30 and 31 um, should work outside of context. The power of a proverb is it's a lot like a parable. All the truth, all you need to know about that proverb is in the proverb. And so the, the Proverbs are this, this treasure chest of valuable sayings and truth. And you can, you can just pluck one out and look at it and... Learn some wisdom. Learn some truth. Um, but I'm going to be preaching from what's sort of kind of the prologue of Proverbs, chapters 1 through 9, which sort of give context to why was the book of Proverbs put together? Why was it written? Why were these um, wise sayings put together? Someone just had a hobby, and they just wanted to, to write down all the cool Proverbs that they heard? No, there's actually far more purpose to this book. And chapters 1 through 9 explain that. And so uh, chapter 5 is, is sort of right in the middle of that, um, giving the explanation and context for the book of Proverbs. So in this sermon, I'm going to kind of be rely, relying on some old-fashioned maybe words and values because I'm trying to uh, take us back to that ancient 
context of Proverbs. And then when we're in that ancient context, kind of, we'll be able to draw some truths from the proverb that apply to us today. Because that's the point of a proverb. So back in the day, back in those ancient times when the book of Proverbs was being put together, um, the quality of life was a lot different. The values of that life were a lot different. People lived much closer to the earth. Even if you were an emperor, even if you were a ruler or royalty or a priest or nobility. And so the issues that you thought about, the, the, the question marks and the problems that you were trying to solve were much more life and death. For better or for worse, in our contemporary society, we're pretty far removed from life and death. There are layers, right? Something is going to have to really cut through all those barriers and those layers to get to us, just like COVID, right? I feel like I've been very sheltered from COVID living here because COVID would have to, you know, get off the plane, get through security, <laughs> get in a taxi and come all the way to my neighborhood to find me, right? So in, in my modern life, there are many layers between me and life and death, thankfully, right? It's a blessing. It's, it's crazy. Um, and that's a whole sermon of its own. In ancient times, there weren't those things. There weren't vaccines. There weren't security checks at the airport. Um, so issues of life and death were much, much more immediate and the concerns of even those who were the most powerful. And so the book of Proverbs, it's uh, collected and Solomon's name is on it. So it's a very royal context, um, the king of Israel. But there are still these considerations that are much closer to the earth, uh, life and death situations. And the life and death context is because it's real world, but the life and death context is also because of the law. So if you go to Deuteronomy, you will see a, a passage. Um, I think it's in Deuteronomy 30. But De Deuteronomy was uh, the book that was uh, compiled when the nation of Israel was going to enter into the promised land. And so Deuteronomy li literally means second law or the second giving of the law. So this is a reminder to the people of Israel. They've already received the law. And this is a reminder to the people of the law and its context before they go into, in the prom into the promised land. And in Deuteronomy it says, Today I set before you blessings and life and curses and death. I set before you life and death in the context of the law. So the law itself was wisdom literature. Okay? At one level... We can look at the Mosaic law as sort of this collection of wisdom, which means um, that they're trying to answer these questions. How do we live? How do we survive? How do we live well? And Proverbs is an extension of the discussion that begins with the Mosaic law and the covenant. So in Israel, wisdom literature has a very specific context in that it's in the covenant with God. We've been given this covenant with God. And there are these terms of the covenant with God, the Ten Commandments and the Mosaic Law. And so Proverbs is saying, you've read that and realized that blessings and life have been set before you and cursing and death has been set before you. And Proverbs is saying, choose life. Go the way of life. Follow the path of life. And Proverbs helps us see what does that life look like. What does that path look like specifically? Okay? We could read the Ten Commandments and say, yeah, this is good. But then we need to look at and read real life and say, okay, how do I stick to that path of life in, in real life? So the way that I'll say it is God's revelation of the law, many people call the Ten Commandments the moral law, right? 
not only was it a law for the people of Israel, a law for Moses, but it's sort of, if you want to know what morals are, the moral way to live, you look at the Ten Commandments. And the moral law sort of is this revelation that we can call a priori. Before anything happens, God says, don't do this, do this. In Deuteronomy 6, um, Moses begins by saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And he goes on to explain, you need to do all of these things that I am commanding you. You don't need to live by trial and error. You don't need to be like, ah, well, maybe I'll try it like a diet or fitness re- regime. You know, ah, I'll try the Ten Commandments. Maybe that will work. If not, I'll just go try the Hammurabi Code or I'll go to Babylon and figure something out. God is saying, no, trust me. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. You don't have to try and see if, if it's going to work or not. Trust me, this will work. And the book of Proverbs is sort of after the fact. The book of Proverbs is saying, yes, um, actually, God's right. <laughs> God's right. You need to follow his way. And actually, Solomon uh, went on this journey himself. It says in um, maybe 2 Kings, in, in, in other books of the Bible, it says that Solomon, um, he became wise because he asked for it. He asked for wisdom from God. Very wise thing to do. Ask for wisdom from God. But it says that Solomon tried everything in the world, basically. He did not limit himself from what he was going to try to do and, and the places that he was going to go and the, and the experiences that he was going to have. And so Solomon puts together this book of Proverbs and says, basically, yeah, you should follow the way of life. Don't do what I did. Don't do what I did. You don't have to try all the things to know which one is the best. God is trustworthy. God is telling you the best way to live. Follow that path of life. So why do I say all that? The law and the morals that we see in the Bible are integrated with the wisdom that we see in the Bible. It's not two separate systems. Hey, you could try to be a goody two-shoes and follow the law, or you could be a rough, tough, you know, wise guy and follow the book of Proverbs, you know, and be more worldly wise. No, this is my father's world. There's no such thing as being worldly wise without doing what God said to do. Because it's his world. And sometimes that's a dichotomy that we're presented with. It's a way that we're tempted to think, oh, I don't need to be righteous. I'll, I'll just know the world. I'll just be, I'll be smart and I'll, be street, I'll have street smarts. You know, who, need, who needs that law smarts? I need, I, I need street smarts, right? But in God's word and in the Old Testament, that's the same system, the same rules. So to live in God's world you need and should follow God's rules, God's laws. And the book of Proverbs is saying, yeah, that's right. Listen to the voice of experience. Listen to God. Listen to me. I'm Solomon, and I tried all that stuff, and I still agree that fearing the Lord and obeying his commands is the best way to live life. So the book of Proverbs is very much God's word. It's very much special revelation. It's very much um, what God would have us do. Okay, so let's look into that. Let's start with the passage um, first, let me read the passage, okay? So to give us some last bit of context, I actually want to read the whole chapter, and then we'll focus on the passage uh, that I've selected, which is uh, verse 7 um, through verse 18. But let me read the whole chapter here. This is Proverbs 5. <clears throat> my son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. 
and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she's as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill out of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed, and you say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. Because of his great folly, he is led astray. So it would be very easy to preach a sermon on sex and sexual sin from that, right? Because we have sort of the diagnosis, and then we have the cure, the recommendation from uh, the, the, the author here. But we're going to focus on um, verses 7 through, through 18, um, yeah, because we're looking at this concept of sin and the theology of sin, both its diagnosis and uh, the cure, the prescription. So, verse 7 begins with this mention again of uh, sons and parental instruction. So, not only is uh, Proverbs itself, in the context of parental instruction, um, I think what we're meant to get out of this is that uh, the law and any kind of instruction is from the parent to the child. Again, back in Deuteronomy 6, uh, Moses commands the Israel, Israelite people, teach these to your children, right? When you get up and when you lay down, when you walk and when you're still. The instruction from the parent is the main mode, the dedicated mode of instruction of the law. And so then, by extension, instruction happens naturally, very naturally, in real world, in real life, from the parent to the child. So I think that's what this is pointing to. So at this moment in time, I have to consider, is the book of Proverbs too patriarchal? Okay. There's a feminist critique. Oh, it's just talking about evil women and talking about sons, and they're acting like sons are supposed to be righteous, and there's just all these evil women out there ready to trap them. That's part of it. <laughs> that's part of it. Um, so <laughs> I looked at this. I was like, okay, that's a valid critique. That seems to be true. But I think that's a matter more of faulty interpretation than what the scriptures actually say. Because if I go back and I look at um, Proverbs 1, verse 8, it says a command fathers are supposed to instruct and mothers are supposed to instruct as well. The book of Proverbs says, listen to your father and listen to your mother. Proverbs 31 is the Proverbs of uh, Lemuel, apparently from his mother. The Proverbs 31 woman may have been the teaching of a wise mother. So the book of Proverbs itself 
though it says sons a lot and it says fathers a lot, explicitly says, listen to your mother's wisdom. And in fact, it teaches a mother's wisdom in the book of Proverbs. So I don't think that we can call the, the actual book, the actual text, too patriarchal. It's a little patriarchal, but it's very honest and open and, and mentioning with women and saying, hey, follow your mother's instruction as well. And this use of the, the women, the evil women out to get you, is part of a paradigm that's set up. Paul actually mentioned this too when he preached. We actually see wisdom personified as a woman. Tell me another ancient wisdom tradition that's going to do that, okay? Lady wisdom is the personification of these teachings in the book of Proverbs. That seems very feminist to me. <laughs> Listen to this woman, this wise woman. She's calling out, I will instruct you. I will teach you not to be naive. I will teach you how not to be a fool. And she's a lady. So it, there's this paradigm. There are these examples in the book of Proverbs, and all of them are women. That in itself might be a little bit patriarchal, but again, there's a very prized place for women in this system of, of wisdom. Which leads us to the, the next verse, talking about the strange uh, lady. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. So there's actually, um, if you read the whole chapter, there's uh, sort of this metaphor of like a rogue, okay? And he said in verse 7, do not depart from my teaching. So the teaching is like a road. Follow this road. And we actually know this road is the road of life, the way of life. Do not depart from it. Do not wander from it. That's sort of the idiom, the picture. It's a road. And so verse 8 is saying, don't jump onto this strange road, this road of the adulterous woman, because it is a road that leads to death. And Proverbs is very explicit about that. You think that this road is going to take you good places. You think that there might be something beneficial about this road. Do not go near it. Do not follow it. In the end, it leads to death. And that's, of course, what chapter 5 says. So there's this picture of the road, and that's all throughout the, the Old Testament, the way of life, the way of death. Again, because it's in the law. In the chapter, in chapter 5, there is this talk of the strange woman. Um, sometimes in our English translations it says foreign or adulterous or, or they even say like prostitute. But the word, uh, I was looking in the footnotes, and the word for it is just stranger, foreigner. It says stranger and foreigner. And so I was reading the footnotes, I was saying, um, is this just stranger danger? Are you just supposed to stay away from strangers? Um, I think that's one application of this. Maybe um, Christians through the ages have sort of drawn that from uh, the book of Proverbs, but the footnote, um, I was reading the Net Bible, and the footnote said, strange might be uh, a reference to uh, a woman who is not following the Mosaic law, who's not a part of the covenant. So everyone who is under covenant, the people of Israel, they would have known each other, because you have to go through the rites, and you go through circumcision, and you go through fellowship, and everyone recognizes each other as part of this congregation, this assembly, which is mentioned later. And so this strange woman, this foreign woman, is a woman who either by, just by the origin or by decision is outside the covenant. Maybe she's never been in the covenant and agreed to the Ten Commandments, or maybe she was and then she wandered away from them. And so now she is 
considered foreign and strange. And we actually see this motif through the passage, this word strange or this idea of stranger, um, and I'll point that out as we go. So we have Lady Wisdom, who's mentioned earlier in Proverbs. And then we have this strange woman. We could call her, instead of Lady Wisdom, she's Lady Lawless, Lady Outside the Law. So Lady Wisdom, Lady Lawless, and then at the end in like chapter 9 and, and around there, um, we have Lady Folly. Okay, so Lady Wisdom is mirrored, is sort of foiled in Lady Folly and Lady Lawless. And folly and lawlessness have a very specific relationship in this chapter and in the book of Proverbs. The danger of folly is that you might be taken advantage of by someone outside the law. The danger of being naive, the danger of being ignorant, is that some wicked person who is craftier than you might take advantage of you and cause you to die, cause you to commit evil, makes you join in their evil. And I'm pretty convinced about that theology because that's what hap- happens in Genesis 3. If you'll remember, the fall of the human race and this interloper comes in, this strange thing, the serpent, comes and tempts those who are in this relationship with God to leave that way and leave that path. And it leads to what? Their death. Were Adam and Eve trying to rebel against God? Not necessarily, but their foolishness got them in trouble. This is the danger of folly and why it's so important to the book of Proverbs. Not just because, hey, man, if you're foolish, then your life, your life won't, won't be very cool. It won't be very nice. No, it's saying if you're a fool, you will wander into death and you will die and you will be destroyed. The stakes are very high. So that's the danger of folly. That's why, because you could think, and that's what I'm trying to address in the sermon. You could think, ah, it's okay. If I, I'll just err on the side of folly. I'll just shelter myself, and I won't be wise. And I'll just know what I know, and I'll just double down on what, I, what I've already been shown. And I'll just, it's okay if I, if I stay simple. It's okay if I stay naive. I'm just going to have an a, a approach of avoidance. I'm just going to avoid all the bad stuff. Ew, keep the bad stuff away from me. I don't want to know about it. I don't want to think about it. That's foolish. Because... Someone more evil and more wicked than you, more crafty than you, more insistent than you is going to pull you into their wickedness. So a wise person is someone who resists that temptation. A wise person is not everyone who knows something about everything. A wise person is someone who is able to resist, knows just enough to resist the temptations to evil and the pulls of the lawless person. And that's the point of wisdom in Proverbs and in the Old Testament. The reason that we're doing all this suffering and we're looking for redemption and we need God to save us is because we were foolish and we fell into sin. We were pulled into sin. So now we need to be saved and we need to be wise. And that's how Proverbs works here in the Old Testament with with the plan of redemption. Where does this fit? Hey, let's not do this again. Let's not fall into temptation again. We did that. We've done that before. And it's really a struggle not to do it again. So let's not do that. Let's walk this path of life, the way of life. So that brings me to um, my first point. If, if you like to keep notes or, or write down the, the points of the sermon here. Oh, I skipped it. 
Smooth talkers want to entice you. So again, in the book of Proverbs, it's not so much that, oh, women are evil and they're just going to smooth talk you and they're going to, you know. The, the danger in the book of Proverbs is that um, it's mentioned in, the, in chapter 1. Hey, there are these evildoers, probably men, who want you to get to, to, to commit uh, violence and bloodshed. They say, hey, let's go, let's go spring a trap on someone. Let's go make someone look really bad. Let's go destroy someone. And so that's an evil that you need to avoid. The book of, of Proverbs here, and especially chapter 5, is saying, hey, there's another kind of evil. There's an evil that won't be so front-loaded. All the dangers are happening at the end. It'll seem nice. Hey, let's, let's walk on this street. Let's go to this part of the neighborhood. And if you're foolish, you'll be like, ah, there's no harm in it. But it ends in death. It ends in harm. So point number one, smooth talkers want to entice you. It's not even so much about uh, this person is a prostitute or um, whatever. It's that this strange woman is a, a subset, is, is a type of the sinners who want to entice you. And uh, earlier in Proverbs, oh, in chapter 1, yeah, when it's talking about those who want to commit violence and bloodshed, it says those sinners are trying to entice you. So the book of Proverbs is saying there are many different enticements. There are many different ways that you could fall in. Sure, it's easy to keep away from people like, hey, let's go kill somebody and commit murder, right? But the person who, who wants you to commit adultery is not going to approach you like that. It's going to start small and turn into something disastrous at the end. So sinners want to entice you. So don't be foolish. Don't give in to that temptation. Make yourself wise. Make yourself wise. Follow wisdom. That's what the book of Proverbs says. So the next um, part of the passage here, um, verses 9 through 14, talk about the consequences of sin and, and consequences of giving in to that temptation. And I think, again, the English uh, versions of, of this that translate this, they're sort of like a, a subtext about um, sexual disease, okay? Um, even this ESV, it says, oh, when uh, your flesh and body are consumed and you groan at the end of your life, as if you have a sickness or you're in pain or something like that. And that may, that may be. Um, that may be influenced by uh, what Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 6, which is every other sin that you commit is outside your body, but sexual sin you commit in the body. And the, the effects and consequences of sexual sin happen in your body. And so there's something very disastrous that you immediate um, to the consequences of sexual sin. But I actually think, again, we need to go kind of back into our ancient context. Um, the emotion or sort of the thing we're supposed to see uh, illustrated here is shame. Shame. And that's why it, it says, lest you give your honor to others. So this person, at the end of their life, in, in, my, in my view, um, in, in the Hebrew text, it doesn't say consumed, and it doesn't say a groaning of an illness or groaning of a disease. I think that person is groaning because of the shame they now realize at the end of their life, okay? So in America, shame and honor aren't that big of a thing right now. Maybe in, in some parts, of, I, I've been reading some, some blogs, and they say, oh, Southerners, people who live in the southern part of the country, they're a little bit more honor, shame. But in South Korea, honor and shame are very discernible, right? Very uh, discernible feature of the culture and the society. And I think in an ancient context, honor and shame were a stronger motivator than maybe sexual sin, uh, I mean sexual disease or, or something like that. So I think why this person is, is groaning is they are, they are in shame. And I uh, support that with what he says at the 
end of this, this part of the passage. Um, he says, I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. That's shame. That's shame, right? It's not quite shame until someone else is looking at you, right? Until someone else can see you. And someone else can see either the, the results or the consequences of what you've done. Again, I was looking at the footnotes and um, these different things. It's, it's very kind of euphemistic. They're kind of using broad, generic terms. Um, but it may be in that ancient context there were two major consequences to this kind of sin. Number one, that you would give someone else a child. So they would have a child and they would be raising it and it would be part of their family and it wouldn't be yours. Even though in a very real sense, it is yours. And that'd be very shameful, right? Back in this ancient context, you wanted children to strengthen your family. Um, you wanted children to maintain your inheritance. Who's going to inherit your property and your wealth that you've worked so hard for? And so you wanted those children to be a part of your family. And that's how God designed it. And so it was such a shame and such a waste for you to dally sexually and then not have that child for their lifetime be part of yours, out of shame, right? So the book of Proverbs is saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Avoid that shame. The other major consequence that this, this ancient context is sort of giving us is the husband of the strange woman might avenge the deed, okay? In, in the Mosaic law and in that system, um, there were sort of these provisions made for someone who's avenging, right? It's kind of cool. You see the word avenger in the translation. Um, not the superheroes, but someone who's avenging, uh, avenging a, a crime or a misdeed. And so uh, someone who's confronted with adultery might have to face the spurned husband. And that spurned husband is going to be completely in the right. He's going to show up and say, what, what did you do? That's my wife. How do you explain this? There's nothing that you can say. You can only groan and say, you're right. I was almost in ruin in the, in, in the front. If, if that husband confronts me, I'm done for in the assembly. I'm done for. I'll have to go to some other country, right? Because everyone will know that my honor is ruined. So that seems to be the concern here. But as we look through, through our lens as well, Sexual disease and, and those kind of things, STDs, are a reality. Um, and so for us, reading this text, we also see that groan and the flesh and body being consumed as a very real thing, um, a very real consequence of this kind of sin. So what he says in the middle is what ties this passage to the book of Proverbs. He says, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. So these words have already been mentioned. Pastor James preached on these. There's sort of a litany of words in chapter 1. And discipline, could, we could translate that like moral instruction. How to live a moral life. How I hated moral instruction. And my heart despised reproof, which is correction. So not only does Proverbs give you moral instruction. Hey, this is the moral way to go. The book of Proverbs also gives you uh, correction. It says, hey, you've gone the wrong way. Get back on the right path. This is your chance. You have wandered. You were like, oh, I don't know. Is this wrong? Is it not? Is it wrong? Is it not? And then you read the book of Proverbs like, this is wrong. This is actually wrong. I'm going to get back on the right path. And that's what's beautiful about the Old Testament system is that repentance is built in. Repentance is expected. Did you know that in the Old Testament law, in books like Deuteronomy, 
It's prophesied that the, the nation of Israel will wander, that they'll go away. As Moses is speaking, the Lord prophesies through him and says, yeah, you'll go away from this law. You won't be able to obey it. But if you repent, I will take you back. If you begin following, if you turn away from your sin and you turn back to me, I will accept you. And it actually prophesies and says, in the end, I will call you back and you will repent and you will come back even though you wandered. Crazy, right? Repentance is built in, even in the Old Testament, even in the Mosaic Law. And then, of course, especially with the gospel, right? The gospel is this reiteration of a, a religion of repentance, an economy of repentance. Proverbs is about repentance. It's saying, let's diagnose this sin and nip it in the bud. Let's get, let's get this done with early and get back on the correct path and follow that path of life. Or else, we'll live this life, and at the end of our life, we'll be like, oh, everyone knew I was a sinner. Everyone could see the consequences of my sin. Is that the legacy? Is that the reputation that you want to have? I don't think anyone wants to do that. So, the second point, if I can get to it, Thank you. Okay. Number two, sin has disastrous results. This is especially true with sexual sin, but we'll see sin in general as well. Sin has disastrous results. I think that the type of sin that we see here, especially in verses 9 through 14, is uh, named very well with this old-fashioned name, dissipation. The sin of dissipation. This is kind of like a Victorian era, like... The prohibition in America, the sin of dissipation. It sort of meant, hey, you're, you're getting wasted on the weekends, and you're just um, wasting your time, and you're wasting your friendships and relationships, and you're dissipating yourself. Raise your hand if you've heard of the sin of dissipation. Okay, okay, good. <laughs> it's very old-fashioned. It's, it's an old-fashioned word, but it's a very accurate word to this kind of sin, this concept of sin. And I have to say, this this concept of dissipation is what convicted me about sexual sin. Because sometimes with sexual sin, we, we sort of think, ah, if it doesn't hurt anyone else, if it's not harming anyone, then it, is it really that bad? What could the consequences be? What could the end result be? This passage is telling you. You're, you're giving away something that it's wasted. It's dissipated. And you shouldn't you shouldn't do that. <laughs> the end result of that is not good. So this idea of dissipation is, is sort of losing something. And really, in that ancient context, you're losing your life force. You're losing your virility. You're losing your strength. You're losing your, your children and your progeny and, and your legacy, which in that context was everything. And for us, it's in our modern context, our contemporary context, it's a little bit harder to see those consequences, because again, we're so far removed from those life and death situations. Hey, if I, if I catch a disease, I can manage that. If I don't have that child, I can manage that. No one will know. I can shuffle the cards, and I can go on with my life. But the book of Proverbs is saying, wake up. That has disastrous results. You're wasting something that God has given you 
to use in, in a very holy and a very productive way. So sin has disastrous results. Thankfully, this passage gives us a remedy, prescribes to us a solution. Okay, in, in, in verses uh, 15 through 18, there's this very interesting analogy that's given. Um, and this was the hardest part. When, when I gave that sermon the first time, this was the hardest part to explain and sort of apply or like, what's going on here? Because uh, the author or, you know, maybe it's Solomon, gives us this very broad, generic analogy or word picture for basically like your sex drive or your sexuality, okay? <laughs> so um, it's a little bit awkward and we're not going to like dig into the, the details of this. Um, I'm going to stay general because it's not a, when, next time when I s- preach on sex, we'll get into the details <laughs> of this analogy. Um, but anyways, this analogy is about water. Drink water from your own cisterns, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets. This analogy has very uh, distinct reference in that ancient context. So for those ancient people, water was a big deal. If you've taken a civilization class, a social science class, you know that cities and civilization uh, occur next to bodies of water, whether it's a river, it's the Mediterranean Sea, it's the Nile River, it's the, the Euphrates and, and Tigris rivers. Um, so water is necessary for life. Water is necessary for civilization. And the wise use and investment of water is what will allow you, what's the difference between life and death. So this analogy is saying, just like being moral and obeying God is the difference between life and death, it's just like having water or not having water, it's the difference between life and death. So cisterns are these cool uh, ancient technologies where you would uh, dig like a jar in the ground, basically. Instead of making a jar that sits on the ground, you would dig into the clay and sort of make like a cavity for water to be stored underground. And being underground means that the, the impurities could settle out of it and you draw from the top and it would be cool and sort of safe in the ground. And so that's what a cistern is. If you wanted to have uh, a house and you wanted to have a thriving um, flock of sheep or whatever, you might dig a cistern to have a dependable water source. So this analogy is saying, draw from your own cistern. You're, you're, uh, you're totally, uh, you know, scum of the earth if you're stealing from someone else's cistern, right? They've done the work. They've dug that cistern in the ground. They've preserved. They got nice water that's ready to go, and you're stealing from their cistern. You shouldn't do that. And then this uh, idea of your springs being scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, that seems pretty obvious, though, um, would be an analogy to like cleansing or even the flow of sewage in a city, all right? If you've been to certain places in the world, they still do this. In certain, um, you know, rural places, uh, you don't have like sewers under the ground. So in order to get rid of your, your wastewater or to get rid or to wash something, you would dump that waste and that water into the gutters of the main street, right? And it can flow and that, that road or that ditch sort of works as the, the sewage system, okay, in an ancient context. So when he says, should your springs just turn into sewage on the street where everyone can see it? Again, it's this idea of shame. You doing what you, what you think is secret and no one will know, it's going to end up on the street and everyone will be able to see it. 
I think that's, that's sort of the, the detailed uh, specificity. That's the, the graphic uh, nature of this analogy. Um, an ancient person would have said, yeah, of course, I wouldn't want to waste water, and I wouldn't want my sewage going everywhere. Um, and the, the, the teacher here is saying that's what happens if you commit these sins of dissipation. So the third point, sort of the final point here for my sermon is conserve your natural resources. Okay, if we were in the Old Testament, if we were in the nation of Israel, this is where I would end my sermon. Hey, conserve your natural resources. That's the analogy that's given us, okay? Like we would conserve water, like we would purify our water, conserve your life force, conserve your energy, purify your, your motives and your desires. What's crazy about this chapter is that it says you should have a sexuality and you should have a sex drive. You should desire a spouse, okay? I'll, I'll, I'll make it true for both genders. Um, you should desire your husband. You should desire your wife. Those are the proper channels for that. So don't waste it. Don't dissipate it. But of course, we are the church and we have the New Testament, and we have the teachings of Jesus. So Jesus actually uses an analogy about water to talk about the gospel, and in fact, to talk about the Holy Spirit. In John 7, Jesus says this, after having an argument and going back and forth with the leaders of uh, the Jewish religion and the different people who are enemies to him, he gets up on the last day of a feast, and Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John um, explains a little bit. He says, now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So it's always great when the scripture explains the scripture reference. It's just right there. I don't have to interpret it. It's kind of cheating. It's already been interpreted for me. So Jesus says... If you believe in me, you will have out of your heart flows of living water. And in fact, living water is a motif in the book of John. Back with the woman at the, at the well, they talk about water. And Jesus says, I am the water of life. And so Jesus says, you will have uh, the spring of living water, springs, rivers of living water coming from your own heart if you believe in me. And he's referencing the Spirit. So the same analogy that Jesus uses of himself, living water, living water is flowing water, clean water, not water that's, that's turned tepid or moldy in a pond. Living water is moving water like a river. So Jesus says, I am the water of life. And then he says, the spirit who will come forth from those who believe is also like rivers of living water. So I have to amend my, um, my final point in light of the gospel, in the light of Jesus' ministry, I want you to conserve your supernatural resources. So we have grace that's given to us. I've talked a lot about sin, but there's forgiveness in Jesus. There's forgiveness in the gospel. And we're freely given the Holy Spirit for just believing, for just following Jesus. We're given the life of God that will flow from us but it is very easy for us to waste that. So we should conserve our natural resources. That still holds. We are still physical people. We are still in God's creation, and we shouldn't dissipate those resources. 
but there is a grace. There is a supernatural provision even for your sin, even for your wandering, even for what you think you have wasted. God can redeem that, and he can heal that, and he can fix that himself. He applies himself. And instead of our life being wasted and gone from us and we're groaning at the end of our days, why was I put to shame? We can have supernatural life, the life of God, the Holy Spirit flowing from us. That's, we don't deserve that. That's a miracle, right? To be able to do that, to be able to live with the Holy Spirit's life and power coming from us. But that means that we have a stewardship. That's where the stewardship comes. I love preaching. The, the only thing other than wisdom that I love mentioning and preaching about is stewardship. Because stewardship is the end of wisdom. Wisdom is trying to get us to be good stewards. And so we need to steward the life of God within us. Okay? So when you don't believe God, when the life of God doesn't live within you, you will forever be trying to reverse engineer that life and that power. Does that make sense? When you don't have God, you have to try to cobble together some sort of life. You're looking anywhere, scrambling desperately. How do I live a life? What is the vision of life? How am I supposed to live? What does my life need to look like? Who do I need to to be outside of God? But if you believe in God, if you receive what God has to offer, you have your answer. You don't need all those other external things. You don't need all those other fake substitutes. So you hold on to to God. When you have God, you have everything. Jesus preached also, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You know, I'm expecting the birth of my firstborn this month. So maybe he'll be born this month. Maybe he'll lollygag and be next month. But... I'm telling you, in the tradition of wisdom literature, I'm the voice of experience. Obeying that command will reward you with its promise. If you seek him first, all these things will be added to you. I'm up here, and I'm confessing, and I'm repenting, and I'm preaching like God told me to do, and I'm also married to a beautiful wife, and I'm expecting a firstborn son. This is not bragging about natural things that I've accomplished. This is about God's promise to me coming true. When I am informed by the wisdom, when I repent, and I say, yeah, God's word is right. God's word is right. I need to follow the way of life. Then God rewards you. You have rivers of living water. You have the the life of God. Not just your natural life force, but the life of God flowing from you. And it will overflow. So you need to steward that supernatural resource. You need to invest that supernatural resource. When we have the Spirit given to us, and the New Testament talks all about it, we get gifts from the Holy Spirit, spiritual gifts. Those spiritual gifts are to build the church, to increase the church. There's two ways that the church grows adding new members, and building those members up. And that's what spiritual gifts are for. The Spirit is at work right now, adding numbers to his church and building those numbers up, building those members up in spiritual strength. So we need to conserve our, natural, our supernatural resources by investing it, by letting it flow in the right way and not hoarding it and keeping it to ourselves, 
because that's foolishness. When we remain simple, when we remain naive, like, oh, I'm going to heaven, everything is fine, I don't need to learn anything else, we can be taken advantage of by evil people, okay? So in Christianity around the world, there are many false teachers, there are many false leaders, there are many false movements, and they would love to take advantage of you and steal your supernatural resources. They want to put your spiritual gifts to the wrong use, to puff up their name, to earn money, to build an earthly kingdom, to build a physical kingdom. But the Spirit is given that the body of Christ might be built up, that the spiritual family of God might be built up. So don't give your supernatural resources away to the sinners who want to entice you, to the smooth talkers that want to entice you. I'm not going to name names. (laughs) I'll just leave it at that, okay? There are people who want to take advantage of you and want to steal your supernatural resources. Don't give in. You will be wise when you resist that, when you hold on to the resource that you have in God. When you conserve, when you, you foster the life of God within you, when you walk with God and you allow the Spirit to rule your thoughts and your deeds, and your actions, and your relationships. That is the proper investment of the Spirit and your supernatural resources. So, let's pray.